Every four years, sports fans around the world are glued to their TVs or bar stools as the beautiful game is featured during World Cup play. Considered one of the most important tournaments in soccer, this year's World Cup contenders are gathered in Russia chasing after the Golden Trophy. 2018's favorites to win the tourney include perennial powerhouses Germany, Brazil, Spain, and France, while Belgium is seen as a team poised to pull off an upset. While commentators will be focusing on the fleet footwork and deft dribbling of the sports stars, analysts will be crunching numbers trying to figure out if the secret to a team's success lies somewhere in sports data. The statistics of the beautiful game are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Luke Bourne, an Assistant Professor of Statistics at Simon Fraser University and the Vice President of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. He's also one of the authors of a piece in Significance Magazine exploring the world of soccer stats. Thanks so much for being here today, Luke. Happy to be here. Uh, I love soccer, but I have a ton of friends who have no idea what's going on in the game. Um, They love American football, they love baseball, they love basketball, but they have a really hard time sort of following what's happening on the soccer pitch. When you're talking about soccer statistics, how are those different from, say, baseball stats or basketball stats? Yeah, one of the big differences with soccer is that there's just so much less scoring. So in basketball or baseball, there's with all the scoring that happens, all the home runs, all the three-point shots in basketball, etc., you get um, a lot of outcomes that you can use to measure players and to sort of understand players that are good, teams that are good. Um, in soccer, where you have a lot less scoring, there's a lot more randomness. And so as a result, you have a lot more upsets, and it becomes a lot harder to figure out who's uh, who are the good players and who are the bad ones. You know, one question that, that I have is, what's what's the breadth of ap- analytics in, in soccer? What are you know? There's you certainly think about things like player assessment, but but what else have have you seen uh, analytics used for in soccer? Yeah, I I think it's used for a variety of things. As as you mentioned, it's used for player valuation, recruitment. You know, figuring out who uh, to to bring into the team and who to let go. So that's things like uh, uh, which players are 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 skilled in the right ways. But it's also used tactically. Um, to understand sort of you can think of as like opponent scouting um, where you're thinking about okay what are the types of tactics that my opponent is going to employ and how can we adjust uh, our tactics to to counter that so that's a big piece of how it's used as well and probably the the third way is in um, performance so health and wellness where teams are using uh, lots of data on their players to make sure that they're well rested that they're fit that they're not fatigued uh, coming up to games so you, you've spent some time working at a professional club. Yeah, that's right. I, I spent a, a little over a year at uh, AS Roma, which is a club in Syria um, that actually made it far this year. That's probably on people's minds because they made it far in the Champions League this year. And uh, yeah, so I was there uh, last year and uh, uh, spent some time in Rome, which was just delightful. Can, can you talk a little bit about what, what, what did you do for the club? What was sort of your responsibility as someone who's a quantitative guy working for a soccer club? Yeah, and were you responsible for them doing well? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, like like most uh, teams, there's a lot of people involved. And so 
Um, um, I'd like to think that I was in some sense a part of that, uh, you know, building tools and infrastructure to help make those decisions. But ultimately, um, you know, there's lots of players involved. There's lots of coaches and performance people. And ultimately, the, um, it's the players on the pitch that are the ones uh, uh, that deliver. Um, so what did I do there on a day-to-day basis? Uh, basically, um, help the organization be more objective and data-driven in their decision-making, and then also provide all the tools and infrastructure to support those decisions. So uh, lots of uh, uh, models and visualizations to help uh, measure player value, uh, understand opponent tactics, and then also uh, get at player uh, fatigue and, and fitness and that kind of thing. So I, I read your piece in Significance, so I'm wondering how do you explain what you're doing to players, or do you have to do that, or how do you explain it to coaches so they know what, what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for the most part in professional sports, communication with the players goes through the coaches, and this mm-hmm. is definitely true when I was in soccer, and it's true now in basketball as well. So for the most part, you're dealing with, with coaches. You do occasionally have interaction with players as well, but uh, that's usually it's usually a little bit of a different focus. With coaches, it really depends on the coach. So some of them are really into uh, looking at analytical views of their opponents and their players. Others, the way that they think about the game is through video. And so sometimes what we do is instead of thinking about, okay, let's let's give this coach or this uh, trainer a spreadsheet of numbers, let's give this to the work with the video guys to produce a, uh, a clip of the coming opponent that's going to be more objective and more data-driven. So instead of having the video guy just go watch the, the upcoming opponent's last two or three matches, let's give him all the tendencies of that opponent so that he can cut up a, a film clip for the coach, which is going to be uh, more accurate to what that team's actual tendencies are. You uh, mentioned a couple of times the sort of dis- defensive way that you can use analytics uh, in in soccer. And I'm wondering, so if I'm Spain and I'm trying to make sure that Belgium isn't going to cause an upset in World Cup play, if I'm looking at this video, uh, what am I looking for as far as sort of um, things to help me understand analytically how to sort of uh, ensure that upset doesn't happen? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. First off, as you can imagine, uh, it's fairly straightforward with the current data to understand which players are the sort of key drivers of offensive actions. So by that I mean... If you just look at sort of the the sequence of players that the ball passes through, maybe from goalkeeper all the way through to the striker who takes the shot, you can see tendencies within the team. Do they go up the left? Do they go up the right? Is it their wingbacks? Is it their? Uh, do they go through the sort of center of midfield? And from that, teams can understand their opponent's tendencies in terms of where they bring the ball, who who carries the ball, uh, which players are more likely to create uh, scoring opportunities, and from that, they can adjust their defense to. Uh, counterbalance that. When you started to provide input to to the club, you said you were you were talking to them about may, helping the organization to become more data driven. I'm I'm curious what what ideas were were embraced the fastest. Where, what kind of input was really most welcomed, and and what kind of input or ideas did did you find the most reluctance to consider? I think probably what I've seen universally is that the groups that are within teams that are most receptive are the performance staff. So these are strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, doctors, etc. And that's largely because they've been driven by the world of sports science, which is, uh, you know, very data focused and has been for decades. And so that was the sort of place, at least within Roma, but also with the Kings, where we got a lot of adoption and, and are able to create a lot of impact right away. 
there's other areas where it, it becomes a little bit harder. So if you're familiar with Moneyball, uh, you can think about baseball and baseball's use of data. Is I tend to say that that baseball is about ten years ahead of basketball <laughs> in terms yeah. of the adoption and understanding of uh, data within within the sport. And then I would say soccer is probably another ten years behind basketball oh, yet. Wow. So when you're talking mm-hmm. with coaches and players, this just isn't a language that yeah. they're used to speaking. Okay. The, the use of data um, really has only been around the last few years. And because of that, coaches and players did not grow up with this level of statistical literacy around the game. And so it's probably going to be another generation before the kids coming up uh, learn to speak that way, where they start to think about uh, expected goals and, and goal differentials and, and pass completion percentages and those kinds mm-hmm. of things. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on statistics and sports. Luke, in the article for Significance, um, you and your co-authors are writing about the fact that um, there's going to be real-time player tracking um, available in the World Cup. How might that change um, the way teams can prepare and the kind of uh, analytics they can sort of gather um, in their preparation for matches? Yeah, so I think the first thing that that you you might see is teams... uh, Overreacting to small sample sizes. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, if, you, if you have tracking data for one half of a, of a match, it's, it becomes really easy to just um, think that that's the way that team operates. When in fact, there's a lot of variability within a game and even across games. But I do think where it'll come in is is primarily on the performance side, as I mentioned earlier. It's really hard using in the sort of sample size of the World Cup, where you have a handful of games, to really identify meaningful trends and patterns in a, in a team or a player style of play. And so most likely what you're going to see is the teams using it really heavily for understanding the loads that the players are going through. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have a player that's maybe playing as a um, central midfielder and, and not sort of a box-to-box midfielder, by that I mean someone who's sort of you know not covering the field, not running a lot, mm-hmm. we, they might then say, okay, he's not getting a lot of he, he doesn't have a lot of load during that game. In other words, he's not going through a lot of sort of physical stress. But maybe another player, like a left back, sort of going up and down the pitch over and over, has a lot more load. And as a result, in the in the days between games, the performance staff will might actually adjust their training schedule to adjust for those different mm-hmm. in-game loads. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about because uh, this is related how wearable technology works? You know, how does that how does it actually work? How are you gathering data with that? that kind of technology. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think usually in practices and, and also our teams will use these, um, uh, these, this wearable technology that's essentially a small, uh, the size of sort of a couple double A batteries that goes between their shoulder blades uh, and it measures acceleration and, and uh, different movement patterns. It can also be GPS connected as well. Mm-hmm. But what you're going to see in the world cup actually is an optical based system. And so what they do there is they install several several cameras around the perimeter of the stadiums. And then we, these are essentially just a, a handful of high-def security cameras. And then after that, they use image processing techniques, essentially multi-agent um, target tracking, to produce the coordinates of the players every 25th of a second. So they're oh, using wow. sort of fairly, fairly complicated machine learning techniques to sort of extract the locations of the players from... Uh, these video feeds and they do things like optical character recognition on the players jerseys on their back to figure out which players which so that's that's the technology so people think that it's uh, 
a hardware solution that, that players are wearing, but actually it's a it's coming from um, image processing from cameras. Very oh, very interesting. That is that's really cool. So so they're going to be saying who's been been uh, covering the most ground. Obviously, they're going to be talking about this the the, the acceleration of these players. There's going to be all sorts of information that's going to be fed to the to the commentators. Yeah, and for the most part, people who work in the sport um, tend to really downplay things like how far a player runs or accelerations. But it's ultimately something that that the media loves. So this is actually <laughs> really this, sort of this gap between what um, people within teams use and what the media tends to focus on. And the media, for sure, will talk about the players that ran the longest and the, sure. the sharpest accelerations. But uh, the things that teams are looking at are more so sort of the overall uh, impact on the player's body, which are sort of more complex metrics than that. Mm-hmm. So, so what what from the data that's going to be collected in real time during the World Cup is the most interesting st- statistical information? I think there. Yeah, it's hard to say. First off, what what level of analytical sophistication each team will have. The thing with with international squads is that um, they tend to be sort of off for long periods of the year and then they come together and they meet and a lot of them don't have dedicated analysts or if they do these are people who are sort of Mm -hmm. coming from another club and just working during the world cup so oftentimes they don't have the time and and resources to do the same level of analysis that a that a top tier club in europe might and so i think even though this data is coming uh to these to to these clubs these uh in the world cup there will be i think a a gap in the ability to turn this this data into meaningful insights. You mentioned earlier that soccer has sort of been behind the the curve when it comes to analytics and statistics um, to sort of team prep. Why has that been? That's a good question. I think th- there could be a few reasons for that. The, one is that baseball really led the way. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's due to soccer's um, sort of thematic distance from baseball, and by that I mean the sort of the style of the game is drastically different. Baseball's a very discreet game, and by that I mean it's sort of, um, uh, you know, a pitcher-batter one at a time, whereas mm-hmm. soccer's a much more free-flowing game, so they're yeah. very different. But also there's a geographical distance, and so I think the fact that the sport has been based primarily in Europe has led to slower infiltration of data mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. sport. So do you have to do any work, again, following up on uh, the resistance to analytics? I mean, there are, we, you know, this was part of what I remember about Moneyball, the early resistance to uh, using analytics, that a lot of coaches feel like this is a field game, that analytics doesn't have much to do with it. So do you face much of that, both in, uh, in basketball and in soccer, given that they're a little far behind in terms of baseball? Yeah, I think this is a common thing that happens when statisticians or other people who sort of work in a quantitative field go into industry from academia. So when I was in academia, we would spend all our time building these really complex, really fancy models, using tracking data to answer really cool questions and we'd present it and get lots of great feedback. And, and you find that in contrast, when you go into industry, you spend a lot of your time and in fact, the majority of your time communicating statistical information and sometimes quite simple statistical information. And so that really is the biggest challenge. It's not, it's not coming up with the greatest metrics or the, uh, the fanciest ways to measure players. It's, it's the ability to communicate 
that information to coaches and others so that, so that it can actually have an impact. Do you have an example of that? Something that you found that you had to explain? Something that was more technical and break it down? There's this idea in, um, well, it, it's actually true in both soccer and basketball. In, in, in the, there's this notion in soccer that they, that's become quite prominent in the last couple of years of expected goals. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is you can imagine if a player takes a shot, and, and it whether it goes in or doesn't, instead of saying, okay, this counting shots, so you know, mm-hmm. player A got 10 shots and player B got one shot over the course of the tournament, you can instead look at the probability that each shot becomes a goal. So mm-hmm. if someone takes a really, really great shot that has a 50% chance of going in, then they sort of get 0.5 expected goals. And in contrast, if someone takes a really long shot from way outside the box, then it might be um, 0.1 expected goals, for example. And this is actually sort of the equivalent in basketball of, of field goal percentage, mm-hmm. where looking at sort of spatially referenced field goal percentage, you know, a player might shoot 35% from this location and 45% from this other location. And so that's something that's that's really tricky to get across. It sounds relatively simple, but um, this idea that, hey, certain certain locations are much more valuable to get shots from, and in mm-hmm. fact, we can measure it. Um, so in basketball, the most frustrating thing as an analyst is when you see a player go to take a three-point shot, but they take one step inside of the three-point <laughs> oh, line, yeah. uh, a long two. And so um, you have to sort of get across this idea that, hey, the probability of making this shot when you take that one step forward basically stays the same. So it might be sort of a 35% shot for the three versus maybe a slight drop to like 33%. Mm-hmm. But when you, one of those you're multiplying by three points and the other one you're multiplying <laughs> by two points. And so mm-hmm. there's a big gap. And the same thing holds true in soccer where players some some players have these shot profiles where they, where they take all these really long shots. And it's a really inefficient way to try and score goals. And mm-hmm. so it's much better to sort of try and get that extra pass. Even though in the end you get less shots, you're going to be better off because those are higher quality shots. That's also frustrating as a fan to experience that. <laughs> I would just like to state for the record. Today we're talking with Simon Fraser University's Luke Bourne about sports stats. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about how media are looking for different things and stats than uh, the people who are working for teams. And so I'm wondering if, if, um, if there are things about the way sports reporters or news reporters cover sports statistics, um, whether it's you know field goal percentage or shot percentage, that you find frustrating and think they could do better. Yeah, that's a good question. I think for, for the most part, media is is not terribly adoptive of these ideas. And so, um, you know, I think people can remember Charles Charles Barkley's rants against analytics and those kinds of things. And so <laughs> yeah. for someone who's in, in the sports analytics world, for the most part, when when media uses quantitative information to present the game, I think it's it's I enjoy it almost regardless of whether it's uh, uh, done well or not. But <laughs> I think the biggest thing that you will see now is that is is focus so it, it is focusing on um, what I would call volume. So I think there'll be a lot of um, reporting of number of shots and number of passes, mm-hmm. and really for the most part in sports, what you you don't really care too much about volume. You care a lot about efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as an example, in, in basketball, if a player plays. 30 minutes versus if a player plays 10 minutes, they might show these these stats the same way for both players. You know, the, this player scored 20 points in 30 minutes and this other player scored 15 points in 10 minutes. Well, I would actually much rather have the guy who scored 15 points in 10 minutes than the guy who scored 20 in 30 minutes. So, mm-hmm. um, but if you're just presenting the cumulative totals without accounting for the fact of, okay, how much usage did that player get? You're missing out a lot of the nuance of the game. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the box score that you developed for soccer. 
You know, I think you know, <laughs> you know, you know. Part of the interest in, in baseball is you know people could go through the game and and see the detailed performance of of players, and you know you could look over the course of seasons, be able to track that. I mean, I'm I'm trying to picture what a what the equivalent of a baseball card would be for uh, for professional soccer or for uh, the World Cup. Yeah, I think um, it's only been in the last couple of years in basketball that teams have really thrown out the traditional box score and started to do something a lot more intelligent. So I think we're a ways away from something like that in soccer. But I think ideally you'd see something that uh, is a very simple example. If you look at um, tackles and interceptions, so these are defensive events. So if a player intercepts a pass between teammates or, or a tackle is sort of when you steal the ball from another player. If you look at those counts, Almost always you'll see, as an example, if you look at La Liga, you'll see Barcelona as having very few tackles and interceptions. And so you might think, oh, they weren't very good defensively. Um, but of course, the other team almost never had the ball. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hard to tackle the other team when they don't have the ball. So as a very simple start, you know, I can imagine that in the media they're going to report tackles and interceptions. But they really need to be adjusting it for the amount of possession that each yeah. team had. In Moneyball, I remember one of the things that stuck was the way that analytics helped recruit not star players but role players. Mm. Is there a similar kind of thing that's applicable in basketball and soccer where you can study data to imagine that the team needs somebody that can do a specific thing but he's not a star? Yeah, I think the thing about star players is that they play so many minutes and they get so much attention that um, for the most part, they're fairly well valued by the public. So I think, you know, you don't need analytics to tell you how great Messi is or how great Ronaldo is or any of these players. But it's the players that sort of fall uh, behind the wayside that don't appear in the in the highlight clips that that you can get a lot more insight in, in from analytics. And so. As an example of that, you know, some players that might play less minutes are, or aren't the ones involved in the goals, they might never appear. Um, they might never be in the highlight reels, but you'll see in the data, you can see, oh, these people are actually the, the ones that created those opportunities, maybe three or four or five passes back from the shot. Mm-hmm. So you can extract that information relatively straightforwardly from the data where it can be hard as a fan or as a, um, even as a, as a, a coach or as a, Scout, you tend to remember those shots and those 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 key actions that, that that led to goals. And so oftentimes scouts are really good at remembering those the the goals and the scoring opportunities. So uh, good at um, valuing sort of the scores on the team, but maybe not so good at valuing those players that create those opportunities farther back in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So one one dimension of what you've written about in the, the significance piece and and other work is the uh, is the idea of the the value of space and location and it makes me think about some of the old the, the soccer coaching guidelines about preparing players to be you know the first attacker second attacker third attacker or first defender second defender third defender all those those concepts of of role and, and space. And interaction with with the the player on ball. So so, how do you think you you start to quantify? I, I know you've started to quantify this some, but I'm just trying to think about how we're going to read about this and report about you know how why this player is such an important has such important impact on space and the play of the flow of play. Yeah, this is actually measuring space and understanding its impact is a really hard thing to do. And one of the first projects I did with a student at Harvard, uh, Dan Stravone, who's now um, at the LA Dodgers. 
is we we use this analogy to uh, real estate. So you can imagine that if you're paying a thousand dollars a month for a, a flat in for a small flat in um, Manhattan, and you then choose to uh, pay the same amount for a flat that's twice as big in Brooklyn, well, that tells you something about the relative. Uh, price of, of real estate in, in each of those. So in other words, e- even if you didn't know how much a, a person was paying, if you sort of see that they swap between Manhattan to Brooklyn and you look at the relative size of those two apartments, you can get a notion of the relative value in, in each of those two places. And the same can be done in, in soccer and basketball where you look at, okay, I am in this really uh, wide open space and I have t- no defenders are around me. I, I have lots of room, but if I choose to pass it to a teammate of mine, who's maybe ahead of me and quite tightly guarded, that tells, that tells you that I value, um, the space where he is much more val- much with much more value than I, than I value the space where I am. And so by using this sort of every pass, you can think of this dynamics of trading one space, one sort of ownership space for another ownership space. And from this, you can actually get a pretty good notion of the areas of value on a pitch, but also how different players and different teams value different areas of the space. Very cool. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that you've, you've, uh, talked a lot about soccer and and basketball and and the analogy here and I and I keep thinking about soccer and hockey hmm. as as maybe being more similar in terms of you know a lot of flow but not you know without a lot of scoring. Yeah, hockey's hockey's a really interesting one, and one of the reasons that it's um, that it hasn't caught up is largely due to a data gap. And so, definitely, hockey and and basketball and soccer are. Very much, I think, of the three that can learn the most from each other. And only really in the last year or two has hockey caught up in terms of data. So there's a company based out of Montreal called called SportLogic that creates incredible data for for hockey that's akin to this sort of tracking data. So Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see hockey catch up very rapidly. Very good. Hey, I want to know, as a frustrated basketball fan... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's the data show that uh, hitting three-point shots is so much harder on the road than it is at home? You see, it's like it, it's incredible in this particular playoff how badly the Cavaliers hit shoot three-pointers <laughs> on the road. Do you have data on this that suggests there are factors that uh, that affect uh, players on the road? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing there's there's definitely a fatigue factor that comes into play. For the most part, there's not a drastic impact on shooting. Where you do see is is there's a lot in terms of the the calls um, um, that that different teams receive. There's um, it, there definitely is a home field advantage, but it's not nearly as large in basketball as it is in soccer. So oh. in in wow. soccer, that aside from the actual uh, teams themselves, the the home field is is a is a huge huge um, um, impact. So it's. Uh, this is why, for example, in the Champions League, they do uh, home and away. So mm-hmm. they don't play single games except for the final, which is at a neutral location. For the most part, all throughout, they play a home and home, which is to say um, if you have the two teams playing each other, they play one game at one team's stadium, and then a week later they'll play at the other team's stadium. And that's to balance out the really extreme home field advantage. What 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 causes that? You would think in a small indoor arena like basketball, the crowd noise would have an impact. But in a large soccer stadium, why is there more of a home field advantage? Yeah, there's been a lot of study along this these lines, and some of it comes down to um, fatigue and definitely crowd influence. There's been studies oh. around um, uh, 
um, the officials' calls. So, especially in a sport like soccer, where awarding a penalty can can basically mean the difference between winning and losing a game. Yeah. So there's there's a variety of, of factors that come into play. Okay. How would someone prepare to, for a career like you have? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that is that the funnel is really narrow. So when I started at the Kings, <laughs> we hired uh, three full-time staff. And for those three positions, we had over 1,000 applicants. Yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a really challenging field to get into. But, you know, there, there is a fair bit of jobs and it's growing. So it's, it, it, I, would, I sort of usually start by with that answer to sort of check people's expectations. Um, that it is a very difficult field to get into. But, but in terms of how to get in, there's a tough balance because if you look at the, the people who got into teams maybe 10 years ago, their skill sets were what you might obtain in a... Uh, in fact, a lot of them have MBAs. They're sort of really great with Excel spreadsheets and uh, those kinds of tools. Whereas if you look at the, the level that teams are hiring now... They're asking for machine learning expertise and databases and scripting, Python or R. The level of technical sophistication has gone through the roof. And so Mm. because of this now, it becomes even harder because if you want to get into a team, you not only need to have this great technical sophistication, but these incredible communication skills where you can, uh, you know, build a a, a complex hierarchical Bayesian model and then in the next second sit down with a coach and translate it to them. You know, someone who has maybe high school mathematics and you have to communicate this rather complex hierarchical model. So it's this combination of uh, really high level of technical skills that are required to work with this tracking data, which is often hundreds of gigabytes, and then at the same time be able to communicate it to a layperson really straightforwardly. Well, thank you so much, Luke, uh, for being here today. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.